Hello and welcome back to The Indie, the podcast from the newsroom of the Santa Barbara Independent. I'm your host, Alexandra Goldberg, and on today's show, Crush Bar in Tap, the only official queer bar in Santa Barbara, is in search of new ownership. The Santa Barbara LGBTQ community is worried this change in ownership could compromise or even result in a loss of this safe space for LGBTQ people. The Santa Barbara Independence inaugural Wine Week kicked off earlier this week, and until May 3rd, 33 establishments are pouring up $10 glasses of wine. The Indies spoke with the Los Olivos Wine Merchant and Cafe, not only about how they are celebrating Wine Week with their Cab Syrah blend, but also about their farm-to-table and grape-to-glass style dining. But first, Habitat for Humanity is a national nonprofit dedicated to providing strength, stability, and self-reliance through shelter. The Santa Barbara chapter is actively tackling components of Santa Barbara's affordable housing crisis, as the organization is focused on home repair projects, neighborhood cleanup, and building homes with affordable mortgages. The Indy sat down with Jessica DeLarbra, Habitat Santa Barbara's CEO, about all of the development projects happening in South County and how you can get housing resources or help out the mission of the organization. My name is Jessica DeLarbra, and I'm the CEO of Habitat for Humanity of Southern Santa Barbara County. I'm a proud gaucho, and since I graduated UCSB, I've had the opportunity to live in Los Angeles, San Diego, and Santa Barbara. And what brought me to live in all of those places is pursuing my passion around affordable housing. Wonderful. And we will dive into all of those passions and how those are manifested in the work of Habitat for Humanity Santa Barbara chapter. So since the Habitat for Humanity Santa Barbara chapter's inception in 2000, there has been a major push from the nonprofit to specifically target the county's affordable housing crisis, as you mentioned. We'll talk about projects in just a minute and how listeners can get resources for themselves or maybe a family in need, but I wanted to start off the conversation with more of a general discussion about the missions and goals of Habitat for Humanity. So you're exactly right. We were established in 2000 and we're a part of the larger kind of Habitat family, but this organization, local in Santa Barbara, South County, is kind of independently governed and run. And we're able to adapt our mission, which is building strength, stability, and self-reliance through shelter to really meet the unique needs of this community. And we do that in a handful of ways. We build new affordable homes and sell them at an affordable mortgage. We repair homes for existing homeowners who are low income. We advocate for the importance of affordable housing. When the need is there, we are activated during times of disaster to assist with community restoration, and we also provide education classes and mentorship to those in our community as it relates to housing readiness, financial stability, and other things. Yeah, and that's all central to Santa Barbara, considering the high cost of living and the 0.5% vacancy rate, which is incredibly low. And just to clarify, how do you get your work done? Where does funding come from? Is it volunteer-based? What other entities does Habitat work with? Sure. We work in a sector that has one of the most prominent community needs, which is affordable housing, right? And it is a complex problem. 
But the answer is really clear, and it is homes. Homes solve homelessness. Home ownership builds stability. It strengthens family. It builds equity. It improves neighborhoods. How to get there is the work that we do, and that's why we are so busy every day. At the core of Habitat is community engagement, and that is because we fund our mission through community support, whether it be from individuals, foundations, tremendous corporate support, government partners, and we have volunteers. And the amazing thing about volunteers is they are helping us with the brick and mortar, right? Painting the homes, helping put on siding onto homes, repairing the homes, doing landscaping, but they also walk away informed about this really important critical community issue. They tell their friends and we have this community movement. We are supported through donations, volunteers, in-kind donations, and those who advocate for our mission. I really appreciate that you brought up how this network of people is really forming a movement in Santa Barbara. And I think that's a beautiful thing when it comes to creating solutions to the affordable housing crisis and spreading awareness, getting education towards it. So thank you for mentioning that. And I want to segue the conversation onto specific projects that Habitat for Humanity is working on. First, the Affordable Home Ownership Program has resulted in 22 affordable homes, four housing communities, and 84 people served. 50% of those are children. So the fifth new project, the Coda Street Affordable Homes, can you talk about this project and what the timeline looks like? Absolutely. You asked a big question, which is timeline, and when we're developing housing, um, we can give a, a rough estimate, but we have submitted our package to the city of Santa Barbara to review. We're in that process, hoping to get permits in the next year. Then we'll break ground. We are gonna select our homeowner partners in the next year. And the really exciting part of this is, once they're pre-selected, they build alongside us in what we call sweat equity. So out there on the job site, we have professional contractors who are kind of licensed and do this for a living. We have amazing volunteers. We have homeowners and we also are rehabilitating a home. The work is always ongoing when we build housing. It really is a marathon, not a sprint. And because of that, we are also doing projects that are quicker and just as valuable, which is our home repair program. And uh, little do we know that one of the most significant community needs is home repairs. And this is low-income individuals who have lived in their homes usually for a long time. Typically, we're seeing seniors, people with disabilities, who have issues as severe as their floors are falling through. And as a person who has worked in affordable housing and homelessness for so long, and I'm from Los Angeles, and you know, you look at Skid Row downtown LA, and you can see the poverty, you can see the need. In Santa Barbara, we have serious homelessness issues, but what we can't see with the eye is the issues inside of the home. And that is kind of what we consider our job is educating the community that it's there, mobilizing our neighbors to support it and making sure that people can stay in their homes because if they can't, there's high likelihood that they have nowhere else to go. I'm glad you brought up the home repair program. I wanna touch on that in just a second, but just to clarify for the Coda Street Affordable Home Project, this is six new homes sold to eligible low-income homeowners at an affordable mortgage. Is it too late to apply? And how does Habitat handle 
the application process or selecting the families who will buy the homes? Great questions. It's not too late because we haven't even opened up the application process yet. Okay. Um, it's all timed very meaningfully. And those who are interested, you know, this is a fair housing opportunity. People can apply um, who live here locally. And to learn about this opportunity, uh, please kind of look at our website, sign up for our emails, follow social media. But when the time does come, we are actively going to engage our community. Um, we're just not at that point of the project yet. Great. Thank you for clarifying that. And now back to the day-to-day goals of Habitat for Humanity, which you mentioned is the home repair program. And also kind of adjacent to that is the A Brush with Kindness program. 180 plus homes repaired. Can you talk about what this process is like, what the goals are, and sort of the output that Habitat for Humanity is getting with the community? Absolutely. Uh, Thanks for asking these meaningful questions. I want to start with saying we are actively and always accepting applications. And so if you're interested in in learning about the program, you can visit our website, sbhabitat.org. Go to the part that says home repair program. Uh, And what we can do is a range of things. It can range from smaller projects, home maintenance projects, such as making sure that door locks work, making sure that windows close. That has to do with health and safety, even though those projects are small. And we have much larger projects like entire roof repairs. We know that we've had an unprecedented amount of rain. And we have a lot of low-income homeowners who have really bad leaks in their roofs, roofs that are caving in. We will accept applications. We first have to confirm eligibility into the program, and then we can develop a scope of work and engage the community, whether it be professional contractors or volunteers, to deliver that meaningful work. Great. Thank you for that. And I wanted to ask you if you have a home repair story in mind that's very meaningful to you that you wanted to share with listeners. We have a woman who we served a couple of years ago, and it was the pandemic where things felt very sensitive. You you know, you need to wear a mask. People have multiple health barriers already. How do we continue the mission? And in this case, this woman who lives on the Mesa had overgrown landscaping. And on one hand, you may think, okay, landscaping isn't that severe. But what the landscaping was causing was damage to her home. And when I say landscaping issues, this was a really big deal. There were vines on the ground, on her walls, over her roof. The vines were crossing the sidewalks, creating public health hazards. And we were able to mobilize teams of volunteers over a couple days to remove this landscaping. And the real health and safety concern is it was leading to infestations in the house. So we were able to do the equivalent of what was $14,000 of landscaping removal with the help of volunteers. Um, This was able to actually get this woman back into compliance with the city. She had citations due to the landscaping issues. We were able to minimize the pest infestation issues. We had neighbors driving by saying, thank you. Um, and, And then lastly, I would say, because we all experienced hardship in our own way during the height of the pandemic, 2020, 2021, to be able to safely engage volunteers during this time was just such an amazing opportunity. 
That is an accomplishment in and of itself. And in regards to her story, I mean, there's impacts on a personal level with the home and the infestations in a neighborhood level because of the public safety hazards that you mentioned. And then, of course, on the city level, as now these compliance ordinances were kind of wiped off her slate because of the work of the volunteers. That's a beautiful story. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, Another project that I wanted to bring up is the Neighborhood Revitalization Program. So this also has to do with public spaces or neighborhood streets, but how does this impact the community? And is this also ongoing and consistent? This is ongoing. We have done everything from trash and neighborhood cleanups in partnership with the city of Goleta on the west side in an area that had a lot of trash. And most recently in our own neighborhood, where we will be developing the six new affordable units. So we've had groups of volunteers, including corporations like Appfolio, who have come out and we have what's called parkways, right? So when you walk on a sidewalk and you have a house on your left and then that little tiny park on your right, park is a big word for kind of a plot of landscaping next to the curb. But when that stuff is overgrown, we have volunteers who are helping to refurbish it. And the idea is, this is a a quality of life framework that if you take local community members and you aid in the beautification of a community, you create safer communities, more engaged neighbors, and more walkable neighborhoods. And it's really important to us that as we work towards building these new homes, that we are a value add to the community as a whole, in addition to the six new people who will be able to own homes living here. Great. And I wanted to ask about that community framework sort of abroad. I saw on the website that Habitat has built 430 plus homes in Nicaragua, Haiti, and Uganda. So what type of affordable housing initiatives happen abroad? Uh, We are really excited to be a part of a larger Habitat initiative. And we have an affordable housing crisis locally. And while we say the answer to that is very clear, it's build more homes, it comes with an astronomical price tag, and usually it happens a little more slowly. So we couple this while also partnering with Habitat organizations, so like a a CEO or executive director like myself in Uganda, and we get to have Zoom calls with them. And we have, with the support of our community, funded housing projects there, and guess what? You can build a home for between four and $6,000 and you can do it in a matter of months. And so it has been an incredible opportunity in the last couple of years to add a couple hundred homes abroad, specifically in Nepal and Uganda, including improving some sewage systems so that clean water can be brought to these new homes as well. So just really incredible partnerships that connect us to this greater idea of housing here and and across the world. Wonderful. Thank you for that. And again, it's that partnership and that web um, expanding, you know, not only in Santa Barbara, but also nationally and abroad. I wanted to direct our attention to some statistics that really stood out to me on the Habitat for Humanities website. One in seven households in the U.S. spend half or more of income on housing. A U.S. homeowner's average net worth is 400% higher than renters, and a $10,000 rise in housing wealth raises the odds of college for kids by 14%. 
Obviously, these statistics reflect a national struggle when it comes to income, job security, and education. So can you talk a little bit about the broader, more societal impacts that Habitat for Humanity strives for through its work? Absolutely. The key word that I say in response to that is stability. And that is stability in home and family and education and, of course, financially. And when we are in a rent-driven society, especially when you're low income, and we have a lot of challenges in Santa Barbara, it makes things feel really unstable, right? We're spending sometimes more than 50% of our income on rent, and then we have to make critical trade-offs. And those trade-offs can mean a lack of health care, a lack of healthy food, just so we can keep a roof over our head. In Santa Barbara, two out of five households are low income. And also relative to our repair program, so of people who own homes, 30% of them are low income. And of those low income homeowners, 62% are suffering from a critical home repair need. And we have gone into households actually, like right here in our town, where people have not had a single functioning item in their kitchen. And so there's just really this paradox. You're fortunate enough to own a home in Santa Barbara, yet the phrase house poor, right? You own a home, but you have no funds to make it a safer, more livable environment for you to thrive. Right. Thank you for bringing that up. I think those statistics are really startling. And to hear you explain what's happening on a local level in Santa Barbara is is just really eye-opening. And I truly understand why the work of Habitat for Humanity is striving for change. So in terms of change, stuff has to happen in, in the government as well. In the broader Habitat mission is the Cost of Home campaign, an advocacy campaign which aims to give 10 million people access to an affordable home through changing policy at the local, state, and federal levels. What types of policies are being challenged or created right now? And how close is the nonprofit to meeting that 10 million people goal? The way I'm going to answer the question is locally. And we need to look at the unique challenges of Santa Barbara. And when we say build housing, we have to figure out how to fund it, right? And building housing comes down to a couple things to summarize. And it's funding and it's political will. And so we play a very large role around community engagement to tackle these two things, whether it be private fundraising or government fundraising and partnerships. We are community-wide working on what's called the housing element, Mm -hmm. and that's establishing what our community's needs are around housing and the types of housing and who the people are served. So Habitat has been paying close attention to that, especially relative to our mission, which is specifically the home ownership piece. Um, coupled with, we did um, have a budget surplus in the city of Santa Barbara, and the city engaged the community to say, what is the most important thing around housing that we can use some of this budget surplus for? And we also played an advocacy role in saying we need to establish a permanent source of funding to fund affordable housing development. So those are just a couple things. We're also very active on the state level, advocating for a program called Cal Home which is the source of affordable housing funding for home ownership specifically. And then we partner with the National Organization of Habitat um, to pursue legislative items on the federal level. Very active politically. 
And I understand that first phrase you mentioned that affordable housing depends on two things, funding and political will. I think that's great insight. So before we wrap up the conversation, how can people volunteer with Habitat for Humanity, donate to the organization, or play a role in government advocacy? Absolutely. I kind of always say start with our website or a phone call. And based on who you are and your background and your skills and your interest and your availability, we'd love to customize an opportunity for you. And, you know, we have people who say, I'm way too busy to swing a hammer and that person may be able to make a gift. And then we have some people who have availability or are retired contractors, right, who can help us on the job site. And then the other thing is, this one is actually a paid opportunity. We are looking to hire licensed contractors and trades professionals to help us deliver our mission. And that market, this market in Santa Barbara of tradespeople is pretty tapped. So the other way to get involved is if you know someone who works in construction, reach out. Um, so again, it's, it's time, um, it's talent, it's, it's helping us fund the organization, and we are growing our advocacy platform around how people can help us advocate and get involved. And we have an amazing leader at Habitat Santa Barbara, Amanda Cobb, and uh, she can talk with anyone who's interested in volunteer opportunities. And that website will be linked in our show notes. So lastly, is there anything else you would like to add to the conversation that maybe I missed or you think listeners should know about Habitat Santa Barbara? I think that so often in community, we hear about all these challenges and we feel like we've fallen short around how to help. And I feel that is such an honor to work and serve for Habitat because we have really clear, measurable ways to get involved. So if you are interested in learning more, swinging a hammer, making a gift that can impact a household in need, I just wanted to say thank you and consider us. Thank you so much again for coming on the show today. It was a pleasure to learn about all the affordable housing development projects that are in progress and everything that Habitat is doing for the community. Thank you so much. Again, to get housing resources for yourself or a loved one, visit sbhabitat.org. And you may have noticed that Habitat's building materials retail store called Restore closed during the pandemic in 2020. But Habitat is exploring a store reopen in the future. That interview was Jessica DeLarbra, Habitat Santa Barbara CEO. And up next, Santa Barbara's only official queer bar, Crush Bar and Tap, is in search of a new owner. The LGBTQ community fears this change could result in a loss of this safe space. The Indie reporter Daniel Husia spoke with Felton, a drag queen and drag show host at Crush Bar, about how the space provides a safe haven for the LGBTQ community and the future of Crush Bar. For nearly three years, Crush Bar and Tap has been a safe haven for Santa Barbara's LGBTQ community. Crush Bar is the only official queer bar in Santa Barbara, priding itself as a safe space for marginalized communities who need a place to call their home away from home. And with Crush Bar in search of a new owner, patrons fear the loss of a safe space for LGBTQ people in Santa Barbara. This week, I sat down with Felton. I'm a host for Crush Bar. I've been hosting there for about 10 months now. Um, I started drag actually there as well uh, 11 months ago, May of last year. So I'll be having my one year anniversary 
Filtan is a queen whose drag is influenced by their Syrian background and a frequent host of various drag shows at Crush Bar. Together, we discussed Crush Bar's presence here in Santa Barbara and the sense of safety and freedom the bar offers to LGBTQ patrons through community and artistic expression. Here's the interview. Crush Bar is in the process of looking for a new owner, and we understand that the potentiality of losing Crush Bar, you know, if there is not a new owner, why is it significant that Crush Bar exists as a space for LGBTQ people here in Santa Barbara County? Well, it's a safe space. It's a place where locals can come and meet the community. Um, a lot of my events, actually, people come up to me and say they've met a new friend. And it, mm -hmm. it's just so cool because it's it's a smaller space. Uh, so you can't really not meet people there. You are you know, constantly surrounded by people that you don't know. People um, that come and visit Santa Barbara as well that are looking for uh, an LGBT space, which is honestly very common. Um, I know whenever I travel, uh, I always try to find that space that brings the LGBT community together and um, hosts drag queens and whatnot. Uh, and so I think it's very important for Crush Bar to still exist and continue and thrive, um, especially get it going into the summer, but, you know, just indefinitely um, because there isn't one for our community within like 15 miles. Like I think the closest one is, uh, is Patty's, um, in Ventura. And so I think Santa Barbara, I mean, I, I don't want to say, but I, I do want to say that I, I, we're required to have one. I, I feel like we need, we need a space. I started, I, I started living in Santa Barbara three years ago and, uh, crush bar wasn't around, uh, until about a year into me living in Santa Barbara and I remember being so excited. I was actually working in anthropology at the time. And anthropology is actually 10 feet away from Crush Bar. I, I was there all the time. I loved the staff. I loved how they were bringing drag to uh, Friday nights here as well, which is really uncommon for, um, for, for Santa Barbara because usually it's the Sundays that are the big LGBT day. Yeah. But I think that we need more. I, I, we definitely need a space that's 24 seven LGBT. You can come whenever, whatever day of the week and we'll give you any sort of entertainment. So as far as the present tense is concerned uh, with Crush Bar looking for a new owner, is there a time frame? There isn't really a time frame. Um, I've been talking to the owner, Gemma, a good amount. I know that there have been a few people that have been interested that want yeah. to keep the vision alive as well, but I don't know any concrete anything. Yeah. Um, I don't know any timeline as well, unfortunately. I wish mm -hmm. I did because I am, you know, of course, scared that this this space might might go away, but yeah. I'm hopeful, very hopeful. One of the things that you mentioned is this idea of safety, right? Like in the midst of all of this, to have a space to turn to where you can be in community with other people is, is so significant. Having been birthed your persona at Crush Bar to now where you are kind of facilitating that space, how is that experience being the person who is cultivating that environment of safety and love for LGBTQ people? To be honest, at first it was 
extremely nerve wracking. <laughs> uh, I had no idea what I was kind of getting myself into. Um, it's not every day that a drag queen becomes a drag queen and then a month later starts hosting mm -hmm. nights. Uh, and I did that because actually uh, a good friend of mine was visiting and I really wanted him to see the community come alive. And I also wanted him to see me in drag as well. And I wasn't wanting to like travel to LA to like find a gig there because I mean, I was still very fresh, very new. My makeup wasn't fully there yet and stuff too. So I asked them, I was like, Hey, can I host a night here uh, at crush bar? And that was one of the best nights I had. I still remember the event. Actually, that first one was called, uh, it was during the solstice. So I, I, I named it, I, I love all the puns. So I named it, Hey, sister, solstister. <laughs> yeah. I sang that, sang that three times. <laughs> yeah. Hey, sister, solstister. And it got a really good turnout. And so like mm -hmm. seeing that and just like, it made me, kind of, it just kind of sparked something in me. And then I just really wanted to continue doing it. And that's where I brought my flashback Friday nights um, as well. And people just kept coming out and like, you know, hanging out and having fun and meeting new people. And that really, that made, that made my life like, and it's still making my life. Like it's yeah. just, it's so cool to do that. But I mean, it, it's, it's very stressful at times because, you know, you want to do well and you want to do well for the bar, you know, and, and make them money so they can sustain uh, the business and I love my crush bar family. I love the staff there too. And I want them to go home with a good, you know, amount of yeah. tips as well. Um, so they want to stay as well. So I want to talk a little bit more about your drag persona. Could you tell me in, in three words, what your drag persona encompasses? I can try. Um, so I'm still discovering Feltan. I think that it's been a process this year. I'm um, just mm -hmm. trying to figure out what really I really Feltan is. But mm -hmm. at the moment, I would say Feltan in three words is sexy, Arab, and boho. Okay. <laughs> I think we will take a brief break so you can change your Instagram bio. <laughs> um, but I do want to maybe get into a little bit of a further explanation of your drag persona. Your drag persona was created, fostered at Crush Bar. What inspired you to do drag and what informs your drag? I've always really appreciated drag as an art form um, ever since, you know, I, I, I saw it growing up. Mm. Uh, actually, one of the biggest things that I did, um, interestingly enough, it wasn't Drag Race really that really got me into drag. Um, it was Drag Race, actually doing Drag Race, which I was more exposed to a few years ago, just three years ago, mm -hmm. uh, when I first started uh, dating my partner, Patrick, mm -hmm. um, that I really got inspired to start doing drag for some reason. And it, it was after uh, I saw Simone win Drag Race, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, she really inspired me to want to pursue it because she was so unapologetic with uh, herself and that really inspired me and it made me want to inspire others as well. For context, Simone is the winner of the 13th season of RuPaul's Drag Race. 
a reality television competition series highlighting the artistry of drag through fashion, comedy, and entertainment. Simone's drag is influenced by their racial identity, describing themselves as the ebony enchantress and unapologetically black. Um, which is why I started drag, uh, because I find it to be such a essential art form for the LGBT community. Yeah. Um, there's a lot that goes into the art form and it just, the, the purpose of it, and people have different purposes for purposes for drag, but my purpose is to really bring to light that there is an LGBT community in the Muslim, Arab, yeah. Middle Eastern world and that they're not alone. Um, I'm hoping that someday that my videos and just what I stand for will reach the Middle East and yeah. give people hope, which which is really interesting enough. Um, there there have been uh, people that have reached out to me on yeah. Instagram and just feeling inspired and yeah, like really really excited about what what's happening. Um, and not only that, but I've also been in contact with a lot of the Lebanese drag queens as well in Lebanon, Beirut, um, yeah. and I'm inspired by them because. They have it so difficult there. Like they have to really hide what they do, but they're still doing it and they're doing it really well. So I want to talk a little bit about your, your ethnic background and how that yeah. informs your drag. Yeah. So um, I'm a second generation Syrian. So I actually grew up, I was born and raised in Arlington, Virginia, mm. and I loved my experience there. It's a very cosmopolitan city. Um, I grew up with friends from every single ethnic background, and I absolutely love that. However, the house I grew up in was like, if you put a Syrian house in America, kind of like that, every, every single last thing from the language, um, well, it was a mix of Arabic and English in the same sentence, actually. Yeah. Uh, my mom used to speak to me, but even the furniture and everything in that house was a Syrian house um, and the food. So it was really cool to, ex to experience that and to grow up with that. And I found even more and more now that I've appreciated it uh, growing up, that I had that. I also went to Syria, actually, uh, growing up to Aleppo. In some summers, like from the age of like two to 14, I would see my family, which I have about 24 uncles and aunts, which is kind of crazy. <laughs> um, and so they would fill the airport whenever we landed after that long trip to, to yeah. Syria. But haven't been able to do that, unfortunately, because of the the civil war that's been happening. But yeah. I've been craving like the, the one place I really want to go back to is is Aleppo. Yeah, because I remember it being so rich in culture and so beautiful. And the people there are so kind. And I don't know about the LGBT community in Aleppo, but I know there is one. You're able to bring your experiences with your own culture and kind of marry it to a degree with other aspects of your identity, right? Other aspects of cultures that you have immersed yourself in. In Santa Barbara, right, downtown, you have queens, of course, across so many spectrums of identity. And for queens uh, like you and just for individuals to, to maintain space is really what brought us together. I've seen the LGBTQ community here in Santa Barbara rally around sharing a lot of information in regards to Crush Bar, not only just event-wise, but also looking for new ownership. Here in Santa Barbara, LGBTQ community is coming together in order to keep this space alive. 
I think it's important for Crush Bar to continue forward. I've had people come up to me saying they never went out before, and it's because they weren't comfortable with wearing what they wore to certain places or just being themselves. But Crush Bar has brought them that comfort, and it's brought them a lot of friendships that that are new, newfound. And I couldn't imagine a, a Santa Barbara without Crush Bar right now, yeah. ever. Um, but at the same time, I do think that Crush Bar isn't really a space. It's its people. Um, it's the people that come back and it's it. It's, you know, the staff there. It's all the hosts. It's the whole energy of it. And so if anything were to happen to Crush Bar, I don't think that it would be the end of Crush Bar. It would just be a new beginning in a way. Thank you to Filton for sharing their time and experiences. Crush Bar and Tap continue their search for a new owner, but until then, their doors are open to the community. With the Indie Pod, I'm Daniel Vasias. Until next time, Santa Barbara, take care. That was the indie reporter Daniel Husia speaking with Crush Bar and Tap's drag host Felton about the future of Crush Bar come a switch in ownership. Now it's Wine Week in Santa Barbara, and until May 3rd, you can enjoy a $10 glass from 33 establishments. The Santa Barbara Independence Inaugural Wine Week, sponsored by Visit the Santa Ynez Valley, calls for celebration. So the indie reporter Rebecca Fairweather took a tour of the Los Olivos wine merchant and cafe, Farm and Vineyard, to learn more about what they're sipping on this week. Hello, I'm Rebecca Fairweather, and you're listening to The Indie, your source for local news in Santa Barbara. Today, we're celebrating the inaugural Santa Barbara Independence Wine Week. Across our county, 33 establishments are pouring $10 glasses of wine for the next seven days. Stay tuned to hear about how Los Olivos Wine Merchant and Cafe is celebrating, and how you can too. To start, let's get a general overview of the history of wine in California. California is the fourth largest wine producer amongst independent nations. Wineries and vineyards are scattered along the state, producing about 90% of the wine supply in the United States. The Pacific Coast and Central Valley's climate and territory provide a perfect harmony for wine growth and production. Farmers and winemakers within the region have shifted the industry by lowering alcohol percentage, raising acidity, growing sustainably, and lowering the cost to make good wine accessible to all. This brings us to Wine Week. Santa Barbara is celebrating its first ever Wine Week, which runs from April 27th till May 3rd and is presented by the tourism company Visit the Santa Ynez Valley. The seven-day-long $10 deal seeks to make the full-bodied magic of the coast more accessible to the public. Our region provides a unique opportunity to enjoy a range of good wine that was locally grown with a mellow sea breeze and rich green landscapes. The really neat part, you can visit numerous vineyards and growers in one day. Los Olivos Wine Merchant and Cafe is one of those establishments. Owned by Sam and Shonda Mormonstein, the longtime restaurant and winery are founded on upholding Chumash traditions and values. But it 
also provides a unique farm-to-table and vine-to-glass experience. The Bernal Estate and Cafe Farm span three acres, sitting only one mile away from the restaurant. The mellow smell of cabbage and flamboyant scent of arugula flowers is powerful, as the view of the bright tomato seedlings that stare back, ready to be planted. Vines stem from the ground, blossoming new sprouts, preparing to branch into fences, training them to produce opulent grapes to be harvested for wine. The smell of grass, crisp sound of hay snapping at your feet, is what farmers and growers at Los Olivos experience before heading to the restaurant fresh produce and crafted wine to be served to the public. For Wine Week, Los Olivos is serving up a Cab Syrah blend, capturing aromas of cinnamon, cola, plum, and blackberries with the acidic backbone on the palate. Sam and I discussed his unique business that brings farm and vineyard to the table and how he and his team are honoring the Chumash people of Santa Ynez. Can you walk us through the process of the growth of your farm in the 28 years that you've been here? Yeah, so the farm, we weren't using this piece of land over here, so we had an organic farmer, Shu Takikawa, was farming this. And he did a great job, and we'd go out there and pick vegetables. And then he decided to take a much bigger acreage, like 60 acres across the, the fence over there. And we were sad to see him go. <laughs> and we, we asked him, what are we going to do with all this land? Uh, you know, we, we don't have a farm anymore. And he said, you can do it. And we go, we can? <laughs> oh, okay. So my wife kind of found somebody who said they know how to farm, and we hired them, and we started the farm. And that was so, the farm has been ongoing for about five years now, I think. It's just, just give or take. I just kind of lose <laughs> memory yeah. of how, how long it's been going, but about five years approximately. So the farm has been a big part of what we do and a big part of the restaurant and how we harvest fresh produce twice a week. We bring it to the restaurant. Sometimes you can harvest it in the morning and then deliver it to the restaurant and people could be eating those same pieces of lettuce uh, that afternoon or that evening that we just harvested and that's about as fresh as you can get. We don't have to use trucks to deliver things, you know, miles and miles away. We're just very local, organic, and it just saves resources that way. Yeah, I mean, the land that we're on obviously is sacred. There's a lot of knowledge and history on the land, especially with Chumash people and Chumash values. So how are you upholding those traditions through your farming and your restaurant. Right. I think we're just being good stewards of the land and really we keep on doing the things that have been done for hundreds of years with the Chumash, which I'm sure they, they had a lot of farming when they were here. Mm -hmm. And we're doing the same thing. We're farming here. So we're preserving the land for what it's been used for, yeah. which is farming. And we, we do it organically and to get it as you know, healthy as possible for yeah. people to enjoy. Yeah. Can you walk us through also a bit of the whining process and how it is to be out here and what the seasons do to wine. So right now it's springtime, so you have the new shoots coming up. In the summertime, vines will be all the way up here, and then the grapes will start going through verasion, going from green to red, and then it's going to be full bloom in summer. Everything is green, it's big, it's, everything's growing, and the, the grape clusters are hanging on the, on the vine. And then we usually harvest in the fall, and then after the harvest, the leaves turn colors and you get the yellows and the oranges and the browns and the mm. green. It's a beautiful color of the vineyard. Here in California, you don't see the change of seasons that much. But yeah. if you have a vineyard, you definitely see the change of seasons through the vine. Just looking at the farm and 
obviously with you talking us through the process, it's very labor intensive. Very it's labor a, intensive. Yeah, yeah, it's a lot of work and you have to have obviously an eye. You need to know what time of the year it is. So what advice would you give to anybody who's looking to go into farming or looking to go into growing their own wine? Yeah, I think you have to follow your passion, whatever it is that you like to do and get into that industry, whether it's working at a winery or working at a farm or working at a restaurant, get that experience and see, you know, you want to go to the next step. I think for young people, I think you have to follow your passion, whatever it is mm -hmm. that you think you like to do. I think yeah. that's the direction you need to go in. And if you have a passion for something, you'll do well at it and, and you'll make yeah. a good living at mm -hmm. it. Yeah. And how are you celebrating Wine Week? So we have <laughs> a, a wine that we um, you know, usually sell for $12 a glass. We're selling it for $10 a glass. So it's kind of a little bit of a deal that people can try. It comes from our vineyard here. It's the Los Olivos Wine Merchant Red, which is a combination of our Syrah, Cab, and Sangiovese. It's mm -hmm. a, a blend that we did, tasting really good. And you know, people can enjoy it for not a huge price for yeah. a glass of wine. So from grape to bottle, mm -hmm. how long does that process take? Yeah, that's a good question. So basically, say 2023 right now. Mm -hmm. So if I'm harvesting in the fall of 23, I would say for a red wine, you're probably not going to bottle that wine for two years wow. down the road. So it takes a little bit of time. Yeah. And then you want to give it a little bottle age or, you know, let it age a little bit. So you're not really bringing the wine out for maybe two and a half, three years. Now, some people are different. Some people bring it out sooner. I know a lot of the Pinot Noir and sometimes white wine you can bring out sooner. So say we were making some rosé and if we harvested rosé in the fall, we can probably bring it out the next spring. It can happen very mm. quick. So white wine and rosés you can do quicker, but red wine, I think, to give it that, that little bit of aging yeah. and just that more polished taste, I think it takes about maybe two to three years. Some people bring Pinot Noirs out early because Pinot Noirs are more of a early drinking wine. In other mm. words, they're more about the fruitiness of it, the easy, the lightness mm. of it. So you can bring Pinot Noirs out earlier. Winemaking, it's, it's an art, right? Yeah. It's not, it can be a science, but it's really an art. How are you going to differentiate your wine from somebody else's wine? When are you going to pick the grapes? At what bricks level? That's the sugar level. Yeah. How are you going to ferment it? Are you going to use natural yeast fermentation, mm -hmm. meaning the yeast on the grapes, or are you going to add yeast to it? What kind of yeast are you going to add to it? How long are you going to let it ferment? How hard are you going to press it? What kind of barrels are you going to put it in? How long are you going to keep in those barrels? All these questions make the wine different. All wow. these decisions. Yeah, that's a lot of decisions. Oh, absolutely. You know, what, what kind of grapes are you growing in which area? Is that yeah. the right grape to grow in that area? Wow. Like you wouldn't want to grow Pinot Noir here. It's too hot. Cool. And some people grow Syrah in the cooler weather. So mm -hmm. it's, all, it's all different. Yeah. Well, you said it takes two to three years, ideally, to brew a bottle of wine. For a red wine, yeah. Yeah. So how was your reaction to your first bottle and how was your friend's reaction? <laughs> it was a celebration. It was great. It was a, a joyous event. You know, it's like having a first baby or something. <laughs> you yeah. finally bottle your wine and you yeah. got this vintage and you're enjoying it and people can enjoy it. It's, it's a great, it's a great time. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Oh, I love that you also mentioned like the science that goes behind wine. Because I think oftentimes when we think of farming, we know it's labor intensive, but we don't think about wine picking as labor intensive, I'd say. We just imagine getting drunk in the field. Yeah, no, people just think of, uh, it's so romantic to drink a glass of wine and have a cheese plate, and this is so beautiful, but they don't realize that in the fall, the winemakers are working like nonstop, 12, 14 hour days for two months straight. 
because yeah. there's so much to do. It's such hard work. And uh, people don't realize all the hard work that goes into making that bottle of wine. We've been here for 28 years. We'd like to keep that going and provide great food and healthy uh, produce that we can deliver to the restaurant and have it as fresh as can be that people yeah. can enjoy. And we just want people to um, you know, come, come to our place and have a good time, have a nice glass of wine, have a, something nice to eat that they really enjoy and, and make memories there. We've got so many people that have come to the restaurant that either gotten engaged there or they had their first you know they yeah. would bring their their baby the first time out they'd bring the baby there you know they've come for years and years that have special memories that they've yeah. made at, at our restaurant yeah that's so. incredible los olivos wine merchant and cafe is celebrating wine week along with other establishments bringing affordable wine to the santa barbara community until wednesday may 3rd you can enjoy a ten dollar glass of locally produced wine with a delicious blend of locally harvested foods. The close location of these establishments makes for a fun day trip with your friends and family, or makes a needed self-care day a bit cheaper. Santa Barbara is taking wine to new heights, forging a path for accessibility and sustainability throughout the world. To check out the Vineyard Roundup and get a taste of great wine, visit independent.com wineweek to find out which wineries are pouring. Thank you for joining us here today on The Indie, and I look forward to celebrating Wine Week with you. I'm Rebecca Fairweather. Again, for a complete list of participating establishments in the Independence Wine Week, check out independent.com. Cheers to seven days of $10 wine, and cheers to this episode of The Indie Pod. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we'll see you next week. Reporting from the newsroom of the Santa Barbara Independent, you're listening to The Indie. I'm your host, Alexander Goldberg.